0: Hello and welcome to the Transfer Window, the podcast that brings you the news before it becomes news, as well as insight and analysis into everything that you're talking about in football. I mean, McGowan with me as always is the doyen of transfers, Duncan Castles. And on this particular podcast, we have news on Manchester City and Pep Guardiola, as well as transfer targets for this summer. Manchester United have been causing a little bit of a fracas with regards to their criticism of referees and the um, giving of penalties. As well as news on uh, potential Arsenal signings, heroes and villains and much more. Duncan, we're going to start with Manchester City and it's our understanding that Pep Guardiola, um, who has a brick clause in his contract, which means he could leave in this summer window, um, has been promised by City's administrators a, a transfer uh, budget which would allow him to effectively reconstruct uh, parts of the team that quite clearly need to be uh, attended to, one being of course the um, continuing uh, travails of Sergio Aguero and the fact that they have been playing without a number nine um, and playing a false nine instead, as well as potential recruitment in defence and even possibly in midfield as well. Would you say, Duncan, that um, Erling Haaland, uh, who, as you reported on last week's pod, um, as being available uh, to buy from Borussia Dortmund, would be a suitable
1: and or likely target for Manchester City? One of the priorities is to recruit a striker, as you say, because of the situation they have with Aguero, um, running out of contract, uh, not being available for many games this season. If you're going to go into that area to replace the most successful striker in the club's history, you need a a very talented player. Um, And there is not a great deal of availability at the top end of the transfer market for strikers um, in the coming summer. Um, Therefore, it's a complicated choice to make. As you've said in previous podcasts, they haven't done well in these choices in the past. Gabriel Jesus was supposed to be the player who would develop um, into an Aguero successor and he hasn't achieved that to the extent that um, in the summer window before last, City were prepared to trade Jesus to Borussia Dortmund in order to get cash to um, hire a different striker Um, and Sean Felix was one player they'd identified to come into that role. But they, they, they've accepted that Jesus is probably not the long-term answer and um, need to recruit at that end of the, the field. And they need someone who is capable of playing at the level that they are at, which is defend the Premier League title. That'll be the expectation for next season, given the, the huge lead they've developed at the, the top of the table and this 20-match uh, consecutive um, winning run that they're on at present and to win the Champions League, which of course is a target this season, but is the fundamental aim of Abu Dhabi um, to become uh, the first uh, owners of the club who can get Manchester City to Champions League title. So you need a player of that level. Now, when we discussed Haaland's availability and um, Dortmund's readiness to sell the player, in a recent podcast, we talked about how Dortmund had come to the conclusion that although he was scoring at an incredible level, the team actually wasn't playing better and what, and the team's results had gone into decline because he was such an individualistic player. Now, do, can you fit that into the Manchester City system? Um, that's the question mark that I think Manchester City are placing on that prospective purchase at present. Can you develop him in a way that he will fit into Guardiola's kind of style of play? Is he going to become tactically astute enough and generous enough in the way he plays that he will not be a hindrance to the team, but will improve their capability of winning the champions league and keep them in that, that position of strength in the premier league. I think the consideration of him as an option is because of the limited availability of strikers in the market and that knowledge that Dortmund are ready to sell the player. Um, and also that the player has no um, long-term ambition to stay at Dortmund. He has the release clause not for the coming summer, but the the, the, the summer going forward. The decision to go to the Dortmund was one of career development. He will move at a certain point. So, if you ask me, and I think if you ask, more importantly, people who are, who assess the transfer market, whose job is to pick players to fit given systems, Haaland is not that perfect fit. So that, although he's an option for them, they will have to take a risk if they go down that line rather than move for a different striker. As you say, striker is not the only area that, Guardiola wants them to strengthen in. He wants defensive reinforcements again. Um, I'm told a left back is a priority Um, and wants reinforcements in midfield. And there you have Fernandinho going out of contract uh, and a a player capable of filling in for him and strengthening what are really already impressive midfield resources um, is on uh, their agenda for the summer window.
0: It's interesting as well though, Duncan, that um, City themselves see strengthening the squad as being central to retaining Guardiola for at least another season until his contract currently ends. Um, The fact that um, they will make funds available. And of course, um, it's not like they uh, haven't spent a lot of money under um, Pep Guardiola, but... They have been quite thrifty compared to the likes of Chelsea and Manchester United in the last two windows. But they seem to be um, willing, if you like, to, to basically uh, incentivize Guardiola to stay or I think probably on the basis uh, that other coaches and elite coaches in particular are not available. Um, or certainly not on the horizon that they could replace him with. And so um, it would be in their interests, obviously, to effectively offer him uh, an open chequebook and what he wants with regards to um, rebuilding and taking the squad forward.
1: Look, they've never had any real hesitation about spending um as As we all know, this is the most expensive squad in the history of football. They've spent more on transfer fee commitments than any club ever. Um, What you have in this summer window is an opportunity uh, because the market is so damaged by COVID, but because so many clubs are having to work on restricted budgets, maybe look at one significant signing, but not on the scale of of deals that we've seen for several years pre-pandemic. A club like Manchester City, whose limitations on spending are purely financial fair play, something that they've transgressed on multiple occasions, but have managed to escape Champions League bans on all of those occasions, can spend. Um, they, Abu Dhabi have the resources to push into the club um, and to take advantage of the weaknesses of other teams. So it makes sense um, to go for it again this summer. Um, and now that Guardiola is in a happy place again, um, now that he is putting together that run of victories and receiving the praise for the way they play, um, it's an opportunity uh, to have a consistent structure at the club at a time where there was a question mark over how long they could keep. Guardiola therefore and if they had got themselves into a position where they had to replace Guardiola you have that whole difficulty of finding a compatible coach someone who fits into the the system that's been created around him no club has invested as much and transformed themselves so much to suit um, the identity of one coach that transition to a new coach is going to be a difficult one um, We'll see what happens this season but they st- as they still haven't won the Champions League so take advantage of the opportunity where you have um, a market where you can buy players where a lot of your opponents can't buy, buy players and you have that um, coach in place for another season um, and another attempt to to win the Champions League and you know it's quite amusing I think Guardiola ahead of their um, first leg Champions League tie. Talking about Manchester City being the best English team in the Champions League over the seven seasons, um, it's quite a, a definition stretch to say that they're the best because they were there in every season and uh, and got through the group stages in every season. When what you actually see is a is a pattern of failure um, and elimination at the hands of of clubs with far inferior resources. Um, with tactical errors, game decision-making errors from the coach in in those uh, particular matches.
0: Sounds like the old Arsenal Wenger. Um, we, should we get a trophy for being top four every season? Another dull and dour uh, draw um, between Chelsea and Manchester United last weekend, Duncan. Drew a lot of criticism with regards to the way um, both teams played, uh, to be fair, not just um, one. Uh, the other, of course, contentious issue was uh, the penalty which was not awarded to United. That prompted um, a very bizarre exchange uh, in terms of interviews with both Luke Shaw and with Ole Gunnar Solskjaer. Post-match, in terms of the um, responsibility that they put on the referee, but more insanely, um, on a Chelsea website piece, which you pointed out under twenty-two paragraphs, had point made to the point that um, Manchester United uh, penalty awards had been quite fulsome. Uh, in the uh, past two seasons. Um, Are we getting to the point now where Solskjaer and Stoke United are going into uh, a kind of bunker mode with regards to decision making as well as the fact that it's a defence if you can defend it um, of the fact that they have not beaten anyone in the top six under Solskjaer this season?
1: In the league, yes. Look, a lot of controversy over the penalty. A lot of controversy over what Luke Shaw said in the post-match interview, um, claiming that uh, that the referee had had uh, told Harry Maguire that uh, he couldn't give the penalty because it would be there would be too con- too much controversy um, over decision to give that that penalty um, against Callum Hudson Odoi. Um, Solskjaer then going into an interview and uh, supporting what Luke Shaw had said and then raising this subject of outside influences um, and criticising the the, the Chelsea website pre-match briefing, um, which is so obscure that uh, the individual interviewing him at the time had to ask him what he was referring to um, with, with his claim that it was influencing the referees. Um, I think a lot of that has deflected from the more fundamental point that Solskjaer's team played in a very predictable fashion, um, in a fashion that they've played in against big six opponents in almost every match this season, that they failed to score again in those games. So they, they've now played seven games against what is traditionally called the big six in the Premier League this season. Lost 6-1 to Tottenham. Drawn 0-0 with Chelsea. Lost 1-0 to Arsenal. Drew 0-0 with Man City. 0-0 with Liverpool. 0-0 with Arsenal. 0-0 with Chelsea. Scored just one goal. That from a penalty in that 6-1 defeat in the second minute. So they're now on 628 normal time minutes. We're not including the added time minutes here without scoring against their opponents. We discussed this in the podcast going into the game, whether Solskjaer would actually play that Manchester United way that he he talks about and, and pushes so hard and especially given the success and the, the statement that he felt they had made by beating Liverpool in the FA Cup 3-2 by playing an attacking game and we predicted that they wouldn't and they didn't and um, I think you, you only have to look at people like Paul Scholes, um, obviously uh, no enemy of of Solskjaer's reaction To that performance Uh, and him saying post-match and Premier League television I I just don't think they showed enough ambition to win the game, that's been the theme of big games, do Manchester United go to these places and try and win don't look like it Um, and and he made a point which I think is a correct one, that you can understand why Solskjaer sets up this way against a team like Manchester City in the form they're in, that that probably is United's best chance of getting a result against City is to sit deep, not expose Harry Maguire to um, the pace that City have in attack uh, and hope to score a counter-attacking goal using the pace he has in attack and, and the ability of Bruno Fernandes to put players in on goal. But as he pointed out, they were playing Chelsea and Chelsea, although beaten under Thomas Tuchel, are not an expansive team. They haven't been scoring a lot of goals. Um, They're not quick at the back and they're not, in the team that they played on uh, Sunday, are not quick at the front. So in Scholes' view, it was an opportunity to go and win the game, to take Chelsea on and make a statement of the type that Solskjaer had been talking about after the Liverpool game. He didn't do it. And pragmatically it's probably not a surprise that he didn't do it because if you look at it from the perspective of the table and you look at it from the perspective of what Solskjaer's employers want that draw with Chelsea retained the six point gap over a team that you would probably say are more likely to qualify for a Champions League place than West Ham or in force at the moment might be capable of overhauling Leicester City and with Leicester City losing at the weekend, it left Manchester United in a more secure position for Champions League qualification. That's the goal of the Glazers. That's the, the 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 thing that loses you your job at Manchester United is to fail to qualify for the Champions League and cost the Glazers money. If you look at what Solskjaer said at the start of the season, his target for the season was to be at the top of the chasing pack, as he put it in uh, the, the pack chasing Manchester City and Liverpool. Well, he's beyond the top of the chasing pack at present because he's second, albeit 12 points behind Manchester City. But he's got a you know seven-point gap on Liverpool at present. So from his employer's perspective, from his own targets for the season, this is a success. What we do know is when he did try and play expansive football, um, first game of the season against Tottenham, the team was destroyed. And every game against the big six in the Premier League he's played since, he has gone for the same setup of caution, um, a, a, basically a defensive setup, and hope to nick a goal on the counter attack win that way. He was clearly upset that Manchester United are not getting penalties in the way that they have been getting through almost his entire time at the club. He's clearly upset that individuals like Frank Lampard, who he mentioned in his post-match interview, and Jurgen Klopp had highlighted the the gross um, ratio of penalties that Manchester United have received compared to every other club in the Big Five Leagues. They're miles ahead of every other club in the Big Five Leagues in terms of penalties 35 awarded. 35
0: penalties in the, in, up
1: in the last 18 months. Yeah, look, you can break the statistic down in in various ways, but uh, between August two thousand and eighteen and January twenty twenty one, when Klopp made specific comment about the matter. Manchester United had 32 Premier League penalties, which was eight more than second place Leicester City, 14 more than Manchester City. Um, across the big five leagues in all competitions, Manchester United at that stage had 48 penalties, compared with second place Juventus 37. Paris Saint Germain, a team you you would say you know the argument is Manchester United gets lots of penalties because they've got quick talented forwards. Well, Paris Saint-Germain have got quick talented forwards. They only had 33 penalties across these games. It's an abnormal number and that's why people were commenting on it. And since those comments have come in, the number of penalties that Manchester United awarded have declined. Um, and you then have Solskjaer talking about obscure articles on the Chelsea website, which I imagine were read by very few individuals, I'm pretty sure they weren't read by any of the officials who were looking after that game, uh, complaining that Chelsea had mentioned in the 22nd paragraph or someone employed by Chelsea had mentioned the 22nd paragraph that Harry Maguire had got away with um, violent conduct in a previous Chelsea game and not been red carded. Well, he did. That, that's the famous incident where he, he kicked an opponent in the testicles right in front of the fourth official um, with the game, I, I think, at, at 0-0 at the point early in the first half. And despite VAR uh, being in action, was not sent off. You know, It's understandable that, that a Chelsea website previewing the game would mention that. To, to say that that is cheeky, as he described it, um as an attempt to influence the referees um and an attempt to give penalties against Manchester United is I, I haven't heard that something like that come from a manager in a post-match interview in all of my time covering the Premier League. I don't know if you have Ian, but it's it's bizarre and I don't think does Solskjaer or Manchester United as a club any favours and, and Manchester United had to um brief off-record that Luke Shaw had misheard what he claimed Stuart Atwell said to to Harry Maguire to try and dampen down the controversy over those um, couple of post-match interviews um, pretty soon after the game.
0: It is very unusual in terms of um, a manager and a player who has participated in a match to um, effectively endorse Uh, what is effectively a um, question of the integrity of the referee. I'm not saying it's rare. Um, I have certainly been involved in interviews and off-the-record briefings where that has been the case, Duncan. But um, I'd say this, which is both men, i.e. Solskjaer and Shaw, went on the record, on television, in the media, to say that Harry Maguire was told by the referee that uh, if he gave that penalty, it would
1: be the talk of uh, the tune, as it were. Um, Yeah, exact words from Luke Shaw. If I say it is a pen, then it's going to cause a lot of talk about it after. That's what he said Ah well, I'd said to Harry Maguire.
0: Sure, I will say that, yeah. Exactly. So so my uh, so question is the FA who are generally very very um quick to denounce any kind of uh criticism and certainly questioning of referees integrity have decided to take no action and that seems slightly weird to me and or bizarre because it doesn't fit with any consistency that they have shown over, you know, many years and seasons with regards to um, how they treat uh, the questioning of a referee's judgment.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think it looks to me like the Football Association have taken the, the safe line here because while it was not a clear cut penalty. Um, I think the majority of people would say that under <laughs> the completely messed up handball rules, which have effectively been changed mid-season by um, PGMOL, who said they were going to take a, a softened interpretation of the rewritten law in October, um, it should have been a penalty. Now, as I say, I think the majority of people would say that under those messed up rules, you would give a penalty. I think there's also an argument that it wasn't a penalty in the sense that Hudson-Odoi's arm is out. It's not above his shoulder. Um, But it looks like Mason Greenwood contacts Hudson-Odoi's arm with his arm just before the ball hits Hudson-Odoi. So you have a situation where Hudson-Odoi, if if his arm is moving downwards, it's kept in position by Greenwood, um, causing the handball. Now, Under the rules, that probably still counts as a as a handball, regardless, because they're so badly framed and there's been so little consideration of of what actually happens in football and what you're actually trying to do. This, you know, as we've said, as we've detailed before, these rules were even brought into place. This was a a response by the English authorities to being found out um, for applying a handball rule. Of their own, which didn't fit with the actual FIFA laws for a period of time until that was discovered, and then because they were criticised for that, having the rule rewritten at, at their um, their um, behest, and we've seen that that has not in any way improved the game, and probably the most condemned uh, change to football laws I can remember in my career, and I, I don't think it's going to last beyond this season, um, but. You can have that argument over it. So were the FA to charge Manchester United, Luke Shaw and Solskjaer in this case, then you could see the Manchester United's legal team saying, well, it should have been a penalty under your laws. Therefore, we have justification for for our players complaining. And then you also get an argument over what was said by Atwell. And I can imagine a situation in where Atwell says, I didn't think it was a penalty, I look on the TV monitor, I'm still not convinced it's a penalty, and there would be controversy um, if I gave it. Now, that's not admitting, as is the implication from what Shaw and and Solskjaer have made, that's not admitting that he didn't change the decision because he was worried it's purely about the controversy. He may have felt, well, I got my decision right, it's not a clear-cut penalty, and it will be controversial on top, so he mentions that to Maguire in in the process of explaining what's going on. I, that again, I I don't think that's necessarily a bad move on Atwell's part. But if you turn this into an investigation, um, with. Manchester United obviously trying to defend Shaw in case he gets a, a, a playing ban and defend Solskjaer in case he gets a touchline ban then it turns into potentially a horrendous mess for the FA so better just to step away from it um, and, and try and let the, uh, the controversy die. Obviously the solution here is to have
0: uh, you Duncan in Stockley Park as the VAR for every game Um, because clearly you know the interpretation of the rules better than anyone else. Seems very simple.
1: Absolutely not. I would hate to be a VAR in Stockley Park. I would hate to be a referee at present because I think referees have been undermined um, by the video assistant referee system um, in predictable ways and in unpredictable ways. But it was obvious when you bring this system in that referees were going to stop giving decisions um on on the pitch when they when they weren't sure about a decision they would know that VAR was present and use it as an insurance blanket and a and a safety net and ask the guys who can see it on screen um what they think about it and use the the ability to have another look at it on screen as a as a way to um try and avoid that what they have done for their entire careers which is make immediate or very quick decisions about what are ultimately subjective decisions most of the football laws are about subjective decisions most of the really controversial ones red cards yellow cards penalties free kicks are essentially subjective decisions so you're, you're changing the nature of the game and you cannot get clear resolution on this because most of these things are subjective decisions because the laws have been written enough in f- into a progressively worse um fashion where the the People have clearly not through not thought through the implications of the changes in the laws and not thought about all the situations that can occur and where they will be caught out over them. Um, you end up with far greater controversy and people angry because referees are not uh, making immediate decisions during the game and because lots of things fall through um, through the loopholes. Um, you. You, know, you allow, for example, incidents to play on um, because you've been told uh, to allow incidents to play on and a, a player can get injured or a goal can be scored in that, that period where you play on and then it's something that the VAR decides happened too far back um, in terms of uh, phases of play, so they, they don't correct it. Whereas previously, without VAR in place, some of those referees would have said, "No, I think that's a foul. I stop there, um, and we move on with the game." You know, we're not even mentioning here the amount of playing time that has been lost because of AAR. Um And there's some quite good studies about how the effective ball um, in play time across the European leagues has de- declined quite remarkably. Uh, because you're, under 60 minutes, apparently, because you're 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 wasting, you know sometimes we've had, what, over five minutes to get, in inverted commas, the correct decision. Um, Also, we have linesmen being told not to flag when there's an obvious offside. And although there's, you know, it's probably only... Again, waste time. Yeah, yeah, it's probably only a few seconds each time it adds up in in the game. Instead of the flag going up, the opposition getting the ball, we wait... Well, not just that, Duncan. Uh, We could probably talk all day,
0: but we won't... About um the ridiculous decision involving Lewis Dunk and his goal against West Bromwich Albion at the weekend, which was then uh, disallowed and then given and then disallowed. And disallowed yeah. <laughs> um, and that decision took five minutes and thirty-seven seconds uh, <laughs> okay. under VAR, and only four minutes were added uh, onto the first half.
1: I, I think that's right, Ian. I think um. We've seen that happen in a number of games this season where you have a long uh, period to make a VAR decision. Time is added on, but not sufficient time is added on, which is an area of controversy in itself. What I find not surprising, given the the individuals involved and given their kind of entrenched positions of support, and it, it seems to be that you have we have now to justify VAR because referees, FIFA in particular, invested so much... In the idea that this would improve football and solve problems. But you have after this weekend, you have um, Dermot Gallagher paid by PGMOL um, to be a spokesman on television and explain these decisions, saying that uh, that VAR uh, has moved on. Um, move forward from the clear only intervening in clear and obvious errors. Uh, we asked the referees to go to the screens, that was a big thing and we didn't say if the referee goes to the screen he has to change his mind we still said that he could retain all options we've seen referees go to the screens and change the decision, we've seen referees stick with the on-field decision too so it is a better product than when we started in August last season I, I do not see VAR being a better product than the flawed product that came in in the first place and in any way a good product. You also have Mark Klattenberg in his newspaper column talking about how VAR had caused problems for referees because of that safety net it provides and, and being quite critical of that element of it. And then concluding, I maintain that VAR is good for the game and some of its good may have gone under the radar. Referees were reluctant to give penalties for holding in the box, for example. And he goes on to argue that they, the referees are now able to warn players that everything's on VAR. Um, therefore, they shouldn't hold in the box and therefore there are less there is less holding and less fouls in the box. Look, it's an argument you can make. I'm not convinced it's an entirely accurate one, but if that's the best VAR can do, again, I think uh, the, the benefits are far outweighed by the deficiencies. Still a game played by human beings and
0: refereed by human beings, which of course were all subject to error. And um, that being the case, VAR is not exactly um, coming through with its promise to correct those errors. However, in terms of the market, Lots being made, as we've already spoken about earlier in the pod, uh, about Erling Haaland and his potential move this summer. Uh, we at the Transfer Window understand that there is another striker on the market for significantly less in terms of transfer fee, but potentially perhaps someone who could be just as effective, and that is Odson Edouard of Celtic who has been the top scorer in the SPFL in the last two seasons and someone who is available for around €25 million. Euros. It's also our information that Arsenal are a club who have made a solid inquiry with regards to a transfer in this next window in the summer. Um, It's also the case, of course, that Celtic, who are currently Um, under interim charge uh, of John Kennedy, are looking to sell players as well, possibly up to three uh, players to raise funds. Um, They are and have been shown to historically be a selling club. uh, And also that Edward is obviously one of the main or probably most valuable assets currently at Parkhead. Um, Duncan, I wonder... Is Edouard a good fit for Arsenal in terms of the style he plays? Um, What I've been told is that they're willing to market and sell Alexandre Lacazette, who I think is a kind of similar style, but obviously aged 29 um, and the outlay that Arsenal have um, put into him in terms of transfer fee and uh, wages is someone they want to cash in on if they can with regards to a move out. So, Edward perhaps is uh, a beneficial um, transfer that they could make happen given the circumstances and the fee that is being asked by Celtic.
1: I think Celtic will be doing well if they manage to secure 25 million euros for Edouard in this market, if I understand correctly, is his contract expires in 2022, I don't know if they have an option to extend that. But uh, trying to sell a, a player from the Scottish market, regardless of how efficient he's been, and he has been a, a regular scorer for Celtic, both in the, in the Scottish Premier League and in European competition which is something that I think Arsenal will pay a lot of extra attention to um, for 25 million euros is going to be a tough ask um, you can see the the logic um, in bringing in someone of a similar style and type to Lacazette who is considerably younger um, at 23 as a replacement Lacazette has been close to leaving in previous windows. Um, there has been certainly a, a good deal of discussion over potential sales, without any of them actually transpiring. So, yeah, there's a logic there, and it fits to the 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 path that Edu and uh, Mikel Arteta have have taken in reshaping the Arsenal squad, which is mainly to get younger players in in um, at Relatively cheap prices, who um will increase in value and uh, and reduce their wage bill. Um, with Lacazette being one of the highest um, paid players at the club, um, they've managed to get Mesut Ozil out. Um, so yeah, there's there's a logic to this uh,
0: potential move. There must be more interest though, in the sense that um. Edward is someone who has proven he can score uh, left foot, right foot, head, free kicks, penalties. He's someone who um, does fit in terms of being a potential um, striker who can do well at the top level. Brendan Rodgers, obviously, coached him at Celtic and knows him well. We know that Manchester United and Manchester City are looking for a striker. Perhaps there will be a market for the player as
1: well as a market in Europe as well. I'm sure there'll be a market for the player. And We start in this podcast talking about Manchester City's um, search for a top-level striker and that there are a limited number of options on it. Um, so any striker at that age who has been scoring consistently um whose transfer fee should be relatively low because of length of contract, uh, is going to have clubs looking at him. Um, but I think from from what I gather, he is quite fussy and selective about where he goes. So you you have something similar to the Moussa Dembele um, situation when he was the player at Celtic scoring the goals and had significant interest from across Europe. Um but turned down moves to lesser clubs such as Brighton and Old Albion when Brendan Rodgers was keen to move him out because he felt that wasn't right for his career and waited uh, until he got Olympic Lyon, um, did well there and is currently on loan at, at Atletico Madrid and trying to establish himself in their first team um, and you know has designed a, a career path for himself, which which is obviously an important factor with the with players like Edouard who are running down contract and who know that the club want to sell them and, and cash in on them.
0: Duncan, it's that time of the week when we do heroes and villains in terms of the last few days in football. Um, I'm going to turn it over to you to do a villain because my hero is fairly obvious and it
1: will not take a long time. Uh, I'm gonna give you villains, a group of villains this week. Um A group? Does that a mean grou- a gang? It's a gang of villains. <laughs> well you 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 can tell me because they're the Brighton Hove Albion penalty takers. Um Definitely a gang then. <laughs> who who amongst them managed to hit the woodwork twice from penalty kicks in a in a key uh, match against West Bromwich Albion at the weekend. Um, Pascal Gross uh, missing the first one. Danny Welbeck the second one, and another defeat for Brighton. Who, despite all the praise over the fashion in which they've been playing this season under Harry Potter, that they are uh, slipping tight closer and closer to being in a in a serious uh, relegation fight. Um, just three points ahead of Fulham now, and. Um, you wonder if if the manager Harry needs to to get the, the their penalty kick takers to work on broomsticks um, to solve their uh, the <laughs> problem. Convert or, or a
0: wand, or a wand at least. <laughs> Wave his if magic not, if, wand. If, if not a broomstick. <laughs> <laughs> very very good. Uh, I like it. Um, although I don't obviously because um, as everyone knows uh, on the pod. Uh, I do have a soft spot for Brighton of Albion. So, therefore, losing games and missing penalties is not joyful uh, in any fashion. Um, My hero of the week, as I said, is a simple one uh, and a sad one as well. And it is the former Scotland international Ian St John, who also played uh, for Motherwell and then Liverpool. Uh, Lots of tributes have been paid uh, to the man um, Who was extremely kind Generous And warm um, To anyone who met him uh, 21 uh, Appearances for Scotland uh, 9 goals uh, And a very stellar career uh, In football As well as then creating a second one In uh, broadcasting With of course The um <sighs> Saint and Greavesy, I mean, uh, for those of us of a certain age, you know, it was the football show we grew up with. So, um, for me, my hero is the laugh of Ian St. John whenever Greavesy made uh, a corny joke where he just would give his very, very deep voice. That's it for today's Transfer Window podcast. Um, we hope you have enjoyed what you heard. And if you have, then please uh, give us a five-star review on iTunes. That expands the community. Um, subscribe to um, YouTube and you'll get us on that channel. And of course, uh, you'll be told when the next podcast drops. Also on social media platforms, at Transfer Podcast on twitter and on facebook and on instagram and duncan and i are on our personal accounts at duncan castles and at garbo sj we will be back with you later in the week Uh, and until then stay safe be well and thanks for listening